you may have realized that being healthy feels different than it did in the past now that you're over 50. If you want to maximize your health potential but don't have time to read through overwhelming pages of Google links, this is the show for you. Welcome to Healthy Tips After 50. We love doing the research, finding solutions, talking to health experts, and learning what works and what doesn't. Now, your host. She spent the last 25 years dedicated to feeling her best and is here to share her best findings with you, Susan Rosen. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Susan Rosen, and I have a return guest I'm very excited to have on the program again, and his name is Glenn Livingston. And Glenn is actually a psychologist by training. I mean, it's I am. his education, PhD, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because of, um, actually, he can tell you his story better than I can. His, his, and what he's primarily been working on, although I can update me a little bit now too, is a book called Never Binge Again, which I think all of us have had those kinds of uh, issues at some time in our life. And so that's why we've got him back on the program again to talk about that and, and what his, he's been working on lately. And welcome back, Glenn. Thank you, Susan. It's a delight to be here. It's a delight to be here. Do, do you want me to kind of summarize what we talked about last time, and then sure. we can go in any direction you want to going, going further? Sure. Yeah. That sounds okay. good. So I'm, long story short, I'm a formerly chubby psychologist who's now a not-so-chubby psychologist. Um, and I that took about 30 years to figure out what to do. Um, I, I was very addicted to sugar and flour and chocolate. Oh, my God, chocolate and pizza. And uh, <laughs> and it it, inter- it interfered with my career. It interfered with my marriage. It interfered with a lot of things. Um, and over the years, I tried just about every approach that there was. Mostly the love yourself thin kind of approach because I come from a family of therapists, and I found that for me it was impossible to love myself thin. I learned to love myself. It was a good journey to take, but I didn't love myself thin. I was thought if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't be filling the hole in my stomach. But then I learned that the part of the brain that really is responsible for overeating beyond our own best judgment, it doesn't really know love. It's more in the reptilian brain and the brainstem. And it's part of the emergency response system that says, when it sees something in the environment, do I eat it or do I mate with it or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game. Um, and, and I learned to, I learned that the way to control it had to do with the upper brain, the part that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that you love and your tribe? And what impact is it going to have on your um, long-term goals? Um, I talked about a silly technique that I eventually developed, which I was never going to teach, but eventually wound up writing a book that has over a million copies in distribution called Never Binge Again, wherein I designated my reptilian brain as my inner pig. I should have called it something different, but I, this was not going to be for publication. This was just a thing. This was just a <laughs> thing I was yeah, doing myself. Yeah. I would call it my inner pig and I'd make a I'd make a very clear line that would say something like, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday because my binge has always started with chocolate. It would progress to pizza and everything else, but they always started with chocolate. So one of my first rules was I would never have chocolate on a weekday. And that way I knew if I heard a little voice in my head that suggested I should have chocolate on a Wednesday, but you know, you worked out hard enough and you could just start tomorrow and a little's not going to hurt. You know, all those kinds of- We all of know that. Yeah. Justification. 
Um, yeah. I would say, well, that's not me. That's my inner pig. Chocolate is pig slop on a Wednesday. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me a chance to make the right decision. Over time, I learned that what was actually happening was that the um, upper brain was a um, the, writing, because I would write down what the pig was saying, and then I'd ask why mm-hmm. it was wrong. Uh, so I would engage in reasoning. I would say, well, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a craving and you think I'll just start tomorrow, and then you indulge that craving, you're more likely to think I'll just start tomorrow tomorrow because you've reinforced the thought and you're also more likely to have the craving tomorrow. So it's actually not, it's never just as easy to start tomorrow. You always have to use the present moment to be healthy. And I I would call that a rational disputation. When when I would do that, what would actually happen is I was switching brains. I was taking myself out of that emergency response system, which is the seat of overeating to my higher brain, uh, the seat of reasoning where where I, I could rest and digest and think and strategize and, make better choices. And it was not a miracle. It did not not immediately erase all of my overeating. What it immediately erased was any sense of confusion and powerlessness. I I didn't think I had this mysterious disease inside of me. I didn't think that there was some force I couldn't control. It, It was a lot less confusing and mystical. And it just was more like, okay, I've got this part of my body that wants stuff. And just like other parts of my body want stuff, you know, my bladder wants to pee, my you know, reproductive organs want to kiss attractive people in the street. Um, right. I don't have to listen to that. I can be in control. I learned to be in progressively more control, par- partially by writing down the reasons that my inner pig was telling me that I should eat pig slop, that I should, I should break these lines and eat slop, um, partially by learning how learning other ways to disempower that emergency response system, the Mm. sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, feast or famine. That's the part that's responsible for saying, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Um, (laughs) It it feels like it's an emergency. And big advertising, big food is all too happy to push those buttons and make you feel like it's urgent that you have their bags and boxes and containers. They're really taking advantage of this evolutionary buttons. We could talk about that more if you want to. Mm, um, yeah. I realized I had this perceived emergency and I had to tell my brain there was no emergency. So I, I asked around and I talked to some people and I did some reading. And I, Lori Hammond, who's a, um, she's a hypnotist. I don't use hypnosis in my program, but uh, she's a hip, hypnotist. Uh-huh. She told me about a type of breathing called 7-Eleven breathing, which um, mm. means that you breathe out for longer than you breathe in. Breathe in okay. for a count of seven, you breathe out for a count of 11. If you do that a couple of times, you're signaling to the brain that there's no emergency. Because if there was an emergency, you'd be going, like if a hungry bear was chasing you, you wouldn't have time yeah. to breathe out for longer. So right. that was a way that you could deactivate the sympathetic nervous system, deactivate the emergency response system, and uh-huh. activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which says this is time to rest and digest and strategize and think about long-term goals. And so I found that doing that helped a lot, keeping track of the rational disputations, all the different things that my pig said and why it was wrong. Mm-hmm. We can talk about them if you want mm-hmm. to. Keeping track of that tended to tended to help because I no longer had this greased chute that just felt okay to change my mind. Um, and then the final thing that really helped was taking care of my body physically. Um, mm. Mostly that had to do with what I ate. So it's mm-hmm. it's not just like I had this Nazi food policeman in my head that said, you will not have chocolate, right? Mm. I, I also said, what do I authentically need? What is my mm-hmm. body mistaking chocolate for? And often it was genuine nutrition. 
Like um, I often found I could kill the chocolate craving if I had a kale banana or a celery juice and banana smoothie. Um, uh-huh. Just I'm, I'm not a dietitian. I just kind of played around and that worked for me. Um, uh-huh. And then as I started working with people, I discovered that just about every overeater is also a really good dieter. They go, they go in these, you know, roller coasters where there's an old nursery rhyme that says, uh, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. And that's yep. how most people yep. who struggle with overeating eat. Um, mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned that you have to flood your body with nutrition on a regular, reliable basis. And that really damp that dampens those urges. So, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a combination of things. And um, then understanding that rules were better than guidelines, because if you say, I'm going to just follow a guideline of eating in moderation. I'm going to eat healthy 90% of the time, but 10% of the time I'm going to indulge. It's really good in theory, but you don't know which is the 10% and which is the 90%. So every time you're at Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, you have to be thinking, well, is this the 10% or the 90%? You've got to got to make another food decision. And decisions wear down your willpower. One definition of willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And it turns out we can only make so many good decisions every day. So the more decisions sure. you require yourself to make, the harder it is to stick to, stick to them. So just kind of, I put that all together. And as I was getting yeah. divorced, it became a system called Never Binge Again. And I published the book and um, and it, it got famous relatively quickly. I mean, I'm, I'm a I was in marketing most of my life, so I'm marketing and psychology, so I knew what to do. But it got famous. Uh-huh. Really. Um, and now people, they kind of sort of recognize me because they forget my name. They just they kind of point uh-huh. at me and go, but pig guy, you're the pig guy. Um, <laughs> so it's my claim to fame. What are you going to do? Um, so we talked a lot about, a lot about that last time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've written six books mm-hmm. since that point. Um, so wow. we could talk about any of them if you want to. We could talk about... Um, more about the step-by-step procedure that people want to go through if they want to stop overeating. Mm-hmm. We can talk about specific triggers. What, what do you think would be most interesting to your audience? Well, I don't, you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, they don't talk to me. Your audience doesn't talk to you. You got no, you guys, you I guys, you have you have to talk to Susan. Leave her, <laughs> leave her a comment on here. Tell her what you like or you don't like about this episode and any other. Um, yeah. Susan wants Susan yeah. wants to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And it is, and it is kind of funny because I've talked to other podcasters and and they say a lot of the same thing. So you know, I think my my take on it. I'm getting off the subject, but my take on it is that I think a lot of people listen to podcasts and they're doing something else. Well, it's a broadcast medium. So it's a yeah. broadcast medium. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. So that's okay. So they don't sit down. No, no. I, I, so I'm, I'm it, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, what do I want? So it what? makes it, so, that makes so, it that much easier for me too. I'm trying to get out so, of the sun here. So I, I think it, it's, they're all so interesting. I'm it's, I'm having a really hard time here. So why don't you first off tell, tell, Tell me about the a little bit about the six books that you've written since. Yeah. So what we found was that um, there were a lot of specialty topics that really needed mm. a treatment in and of themselves. Like I, I don't mm-hmm. mean like a clinical treatment. I mean like a, yeah. <laughs> a, a literary treatment in and of themselves. Yeah. A book. A book. And um, for example, people felt like every specific trigger must have a specific solution, which isn't really true. But there were some particular tips for particular triggers, like, you know, what to do if you have trouble eating at night? What do you do if you have trouble Mm -hmm. during your, you know, during that time of month? What what do you do? do, How do you manage emotional triggers? Um, So the first 
one of the first books I wrote after Never Binge Again was called 45 Binge Triggers. And we talked about 45 very specific. Um, it's actually 45 binge triggers and what to do to eradicate them, something like that until they go away. Um, just search for 45 <clears throat> binge triggers and you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting, particularly the emotional eating part of it. I actually learned a bunch of things researching that definitely talk about that because the culture totally misunderstands emotional eating. They, oh, I'm sure. The, the next book was um, an end to nighttime overeating because we found there was a large contingency of people that couldn't stop eating at night. They would be good all day long and they couldn't stop eating at night. And it turned oh, out wow. they were making very common mistakes across across that particular subculture um, and some things that needed to be fixed there. I wrote a workbook, which was a step-by-step through the system. So I took, you know, we've, we've coached almost 2,000 people at this point. And I guess wow. by, by 2019, it was probably 1,000 people. So we took the system that we developed, let's say we, because I have a partner, uh, we took the system uh-huh. that we, we developed and we we turned it into an algorithm, like a step-by-step algorithm that in the workbook, it's called I Love My Workbook. Uh-huh. And th- there's an autobiography about how I developed the problem in the first place and what I did about it. And mm. uh, it's mm. called Me, Me and My Pig and I. Something we call the food demon interviews, which are really a series of success stories, but it's uh-huh. uh, actual transcripts of coaching sessions and comments, commentary on that. So I um, ah. yeah, re- read a lot of books. <clears throat> wow. Wow. That's great. That's great. <clears throat> yeah. I, I would, um, let's go back to the first one. I think that's, that's... the binge trigger book. Yeah. 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 Cause that's, mm-hmm. I think that's something that we're all unique. I mean, I understand that. But there are probably, but there are, there've got to be certain groupings of things. Well, 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 what if I talked a bit about emotional eating? Because a lot of people are triggered ah, when they, they feel emotional. Good. That sounds there, great. There are different classes of that. There's anxiety, there's anger, there, there's um, uh-huh. sadness, there's frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what they all have in common is a misunderstanding of how the relationship works. Most people think I have this emotion and this causes overeating because the emotion is intolerable um, and I have to numb out if we quote unquote, I am going to kind of quote unquote numb okay. out. And so it's kind of an automatic thing. And you see the classic iconic um, scenario is the golden girls when the Maud, Maud or, or Everly, what her name is, she says, I'll get the cheesecake or Betty. She says, I'll get the cheesecake, right? People think that that's how it works and it's a part of it, but it's, it's mm-hmm. far from the whole story. Excuse me. And I always joke with people. I said, if the only reason you were overeating was to numb out, and if overeating was so effective at numbing you out, then when you went to the dentist and they were out of Novocaine, couldn't they just inject you with a bagel and you'd be, people think that's silly, but they they remember that. So first of all, the things we typically overeat on don't only anesthetize the emotional system. It's true that if you overeat, if you overload the digestive system, the nervous Mm -hmm. system has difficulty conducting the emotions. So the intensity of emotion does go down initially when you overeat. The overeating also functions as an operantly conditioned reward for the feeling itself. So if you're someone who feels very anxious in the evening and feels like they can't get to bed without overeating, you might... your heart rate might be a little bit tightened. Mm-hmm. Your galvanic skin response might be up a little bit. Maybe your blood pressure is a little raised, your respiration, your perspiration. Those are all manifestations, mm-hmm. physical manifestations of anxiety. When we look in animal studies and what happens when we observe groups of animals and then we give them a sugar reward when they have certain physiological experiences, uh, um, uh-huh. those animals learn to demonstrate those physical experiences more often. So a group of baboons that are rewarded with sugar every time they have high blood pressure learns to have high blood pressure all the time, right? Wow. And yeah. so what, what's happening here, you're thinking, feel anxiety, overeat. 
right? But it's mm-hmm. also overeat. Okay. So it, it goes down temporarily when you get the, the food, but just temporarily, you're actually conditioning the anxiety in your body. So we, we find that people who can't sleep without overeating, they, and you have to ask your doctor if it's okay to do this, because I'm, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm, I'm not your medical doctor in any case. <laughs> um, we find that most of the people, the path to recovery goes through a week or two of not being able to sleep. It's almost like you have to say to the pig, huh. okay, you're telling me, I won't be able to sleep if I don't have a big plate of spaghetti or something. Well, so I mm-hmm. won't sleep. Say, I can't sleep. I won't sleep. Uh, it's about 70% as good to lie still with your eyes closed as it is to sleep anyway. Um, uh-huh. And so they, huh. have a, they, oh, have a, they have a, they get a few bad nights, um, but then the reward stops and the brain is set up to conserve energy. So if you're not constantly rewarding it for a particular behavior, that behavior slowly begins to stop. It's like a, a toddler having a tantrum. If you stop paying attention, eventually the, the tantrum starts to go down. It's hard to get through that period. So that's a really important thing. The, the other thing is that is an intervening variable between the stimulus or the you know, emotional stimulation mm. and the response mm-hmm. of overeating, which is um, it's a rationalization. We have these things called identities. We like to see ourselves acting in a consistent way. So if I say I will never have chocolate again on a Wednesday, I don't like to observe myself having chocolate on a Wednesday. It creates um, a phenomenon that Leanne Festinger called cognitive dissonance, like a psychological pain. And so we come up with these rationalizations. Um, A little bit won't hurt. You worked out hard enough. You're not going to, you won't gain weight. Chocolate grows on a cocoa plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, We come up with... (laughs) We come up with these rationalizations and it, it greases uh-huh. the shoot. It's almost like those rational, like if you had a, if the emotion were a fire and it was living in a fireplace, um, in a well-contained fireplace, the rationalizations are poking holes in the fireplace so the ashes can get out. And I, I find that's a helpful mm. analogy because a fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room is an asset, not a liability. People gather around they hug, they cry, they laugh, they tell memories, they tell stories, and they make memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they get warm. And they get warm. Yeah. Your, your, your emotions are a valuable asset. It's only when that pathway has been greased, when, when you've poked holes mm-hmm. in the fireplace with these rationalizations, that you mm-hmm. can you can get into trouble. So what you want to do is identify all those rationalizations and fix them. You want to prove mm-hmm. why each one of them is wrong. Um I told you why you can't start tomorrow. It's never just a little. People say it's going to be just a little, but it's never just a little. And when when the pig says a little won't hurt, you can say, well, a little bit is the difference between who's in charge, me or you. And I want to be the master of my own fight, fate. I don't want to be your B-I-A-T-C-H, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, I, I want to be in charge because I want to make decisions about what's important to me. And nobody's giving me these rules. I'm making my own rules. So if I, there's something I really want to have that it's not on my plan today, I can plan, I can change the rules for tomorrow and give myself 24 hours after writing it down and thinking it through before it takes mm-hmm. effect. So I make sure that my, you know, pig is not doing it emotionally, whimsically. Okay. Um, okay. So, so there's no, you, you kind of have to tell your pig that there's no emotion you're unwilling to tolerate without binging, that your, your rules are your rules and that's it. Right. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So, so. There's this kind of complex relationship between emotions and overeating. It's not what people think. I tell people to tell themselves, you're getting high with food, rather than saying, I'm comforting myself. Because if you say, oh, I need comfort food, then your pig is going right. to start crying and saying, I'm hurting. And, you know, I'm, right. I, 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 just, I just need food. Right. Yeah, I just need comfort. Right. 
and you're going to feel sorry for it and you're going to do it. So I ask people to shift their paradigm like that. Um, so that's some kind of elucidation of the um, confusion about emotional eating in our culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I help people to overcome that. It gets tied into social eating. And uh, sh- yeah. sh- shall I pause first and see if there's anything you want to ask me about emotional eating? Or should I move no, to? No, no, it all made, it all made, it all made perfect sense. You know, I guess my only, my only question actually that comes up is, um, I'm, I'm just thinking back in my own head, you know, back 40 some years ago or more, um, when I was fat and, you know, I was just trying to, trying to think if my, if my, and, and it's, and it's really an impossibility to do, <laughs> which is to think back and think, okay, was that what I was doing? I mean, to me, it just seemed like I was eating all the time. It wasn't that it wasn't that, oh, this happened. And then I ate, it was just, I was eating all the time. Well, well there's an automatic, <clears throat> there's an automaticity that mm. develops because the brain is set up to conserve okay. energy. Uh-huh. And so if you allow it to, uh-huh. um, it, it becomes an automatic behavior. These kinds of conversations in your head are what occur when you're trying to change your behavior. Um, if you allow it to become automatic, then people will say, well, I just don't hear the pick. I'm just eating all the time or I pass a bakery and I go in and I buy stuff and it's just mm-hmm. automatic. But that's that's the mm-hmm. point is that you can intervene in the automaticity. You can insert a space between stimulus and response mm. so that you can you know, pull those levers and uh-huh. cho- choose the kind of food that you want to have. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. I just had something else that came up and I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, it'll come back to me. Um, it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's fine. What was it you were saying? I don't oh, know I why gonna... my brain is just not working. My memory is, is not on, is obviously not open this morning. Yeah. You were, you were saying that. To, about social, about social eating. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people associate emotional eating with social eating because they feel these. Okay interpersonal yeah. forces you know so they're going to thanksgiving or christmas or right. you know a birthday party or yeah. something like that or, or the girls go out for lunch or dinner or mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah so first of all i mean restaurants are another story altogether oh, but, okay. but people feel a lot of pressure to eat what everybody else is eating and mm-hmm. i, I want to give you a little tool you can use a little trick of mine mm-hmm. that you can use to navigate that situation. Um, It involves understanding the psychology of groups and Mm -hmm. where it probably came from. So most people think that the pressure to eat what everybody else is eating while you're in a group, is just because they don't want to feel guilty about what they're eating. They want to eat what tastes good to them. And as a consequence, we all tacitly agree to slowly kill ourselves with food and joke it off, right? Like, let's go get the cheesecake, right? Ha ha ha. Um, and in the meantime, you know, diabetes is up by 80% and kidney disease is almost double mm-hmm. and cardiovascular disease is tripled in the last 30 years or something. Um, wow. Don't quote me on those stats. Just look at the World Health Organization. It's really bad. The, the pressure to eat what everybody else eats in a group probably originally comes that in our early evolution, food was not really very abundant and infinitely available like it is today. Mm. Um, it it mm. was likely that when there was a catch or a harvest, that only one thing was available. It was also probably likely that every member's labor of the tribe was necessary for survival. Um, and that if someone were to become feeble or sick, that they would be a burden on the tribe and put the tribe at risk. So it really was a matter of survival that you eat what everyone else was eating. When two warring tribes would try to make peace, they would break bread together. They would eat together to demonstrate that they're not there to uh, maim, kill, mutilate, rape. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that they're actually friends and, and safe mm-hmm. allies now. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this, I believe there is this underlying feeling, even though it's not rational in today's world, it's really only a hundred thousand years or so ago that life was like that, which is a, a blip on the scale of evolution. Uh, we have these very hardwired feelings that we're supposed to eat what everybody else is eating or else we're putting the tribe at risk. It's a matter of survival. It's not just mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. indulgence and taste. Okay. And the other force that's, and I'm telling you all this so you don't go into battle wearing a plastic helmet. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the other force at play is the necessity of group cohesion. Um, in group psychology, there's a difference between an aggregate, which is just a unorganized group of people, and a group, which has a set of norms and values and ways that we should live together. Think about walking into an elevator. If I walked into an elevator today, even before the pandemic, and there are 10 people in the elevator, as far apart as we can, not looking at each other, staring up at the screen, not having much to do with each other, trying to write out the ordeal, right? God forbid yeah. someone says good morning or anything like that. That, that that's an aggregate, right? Uh-huh. Um, it wouldn't make any sense when I got to my floor for me to s- turn to everybody and say, this was great. Let's do it again next year. Um, okay. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. However, if I, if I get stuck in the elevator with those people for three hours in between floors, by the time the repairmen come to open up the elevator and rescue us, um, we've probably developed a bunch of routines together. First of all, we're, maybe we're playing cards, at least sitting in a circle and joking around. Maybe we have a norm for how often it's okay to press the call button. What do we do when one of us has to go to the bathroom? Is there a way that we talk, talk each other down? Maybe there's a song that we're singing. It's become yeah. a group. We, we've had an experience. We have, we have an yeah. identity as a group, okay? That experience, that quality of groupness, of group cohesion, mm-hmm. um, it fades as time passes when the group is not together. And so let's say you go into your families for Thanksgiving, but you haven't seen them for a couple of months. The group is going to make an effort to re-cohere the group. Part of that effort is to make a love offering. Um, often that's mm. in the form of food. Mom comes running up and says, oh, you look so thin. I made, Darling, I made your favorite chocolate chip cake. Um, you know, here, a little's not going to hurt you. Now, what most people do will say, well, mom, you know, I can't have chocolate. My doctor's isn't that good for me or... Um, I'm really trying to get down. No, the problem is that there are two things that occur there. First of all, you're not allowing the group cohesion to take place, right? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of rejecting her and there's this unconscious fear that the group is going to fall apart. Even if you've been a family for 20 years or whatever, it's still kind yeah. of built into our DNA. The group is going to fall apart. And the second thing is now mom feels guilty. Maybe she shouldn't have made it for you. Maybe she shouldn't be eating this yeah. herself, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's a real problem. It's a real problem. Mm -hmm. What I suggest you do instead there is called the alternative love gift technique, where you redirect mom to love you in a different way. And it could be something like, um, you know, mom, I'm so cold. You happen to have a sweater I could wear. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm just so cold. It's just, oh, of course, darling, here, let me take care of you. She's loving you back into the group. Mom, you know, I ate a little too much at lunch. Do you have any mint tea? Could you make me some mint tea? You know that mint tea you used to make? I would love that. Of course, darling, I'll do that. It could even be information. Mom, I couldn't get an internet connection in the car. I'm dying to know what the score of the game is. Do you think I could look at the TV for a second? Any of the above, you you give her something yeah. else she can give you to love you back into mm-hmm. the tribe. Yeah. And then the conversation yeah. about food, it moves to the side. It's it's um I've developed a bunch of different ways to try to do this over the years, but this is the best one. So um 
Yeah, that's a little tip for managing the social environment. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's really that that goes for even having nothing to do with being on a diet or watching your meals or whatever. I mean, it could just be you don't like what they are offering. And so you can just kind of say, Yeah, you know, that's yeah, not really in the mood for that. But gee, if you have this, that would be really great. Mm-hmm. If you have this in the refrigerator. Absolutely. Um absolutely. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's really a you know, just when you were when you were talking about it, I could see that happening, whether being on a diet or not. There's so many people have such different food um, likes and dislikes these days. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And well, well, they usually they always have, but, you know, and and allergies. And, you know, there's so many other reasons that that could come up. All and that, that's such a yeah, that's such a great trick to know. The last major book okay. that yeah. you, want stop, you want to stop there? No, 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 no. That's okay. I was going to say, go on, go on. <laughs> well, the last major book I'll talk about before we go is um, an end uh-huh. to night, and then an end to nighttime over, an end to nighttime mm. over. This was the last major problem that we had to solve. You know, we get very good results with our binge coaching okay. pr- programming, ninety percent reduction in the first month. We, we do really, really well for for people that engage with the program, talk to the yeah. coach, and everything like that. What we found though was that the people who were overeating at night did significantly worse. We just couldn't seem to solve that. And so I hired some researchers to look into the literature on nighttime overeating. We did Mm. a big survey. We interviewed a whole bunch of people. And we found a bunch of really interesting things. First of all, just about everybody who had overcome nighttime overeating was someone who was eating breakfast late in the day. They, they They were trying to not really have breakfast at all or not start until like 11 o'clock. Oh, okay. They would often say, you know, they were, they were kind of focusing intermittent fasting, and which is, you know, beneficial in and of itself. But right. if you're struggling with binging at night, it's not really going to help you. Yeah. And so, so we'd recommend that people take a period of time where they have breakfast earlier. It seems mm-hmm. like the brain, when the brain perceives the nighttime fast is going to be long, it signals you that you really better get some food in at night before you go to bed. And, and so when you know that the nighttime fast is not going to be quite as long, then you stop overeating as much at night. Mm-hmm. We, also fa- we also found that the people who overcame nighttime overeating were adding crunch to their lunch, some type of um, you know, carrots or celery or uh-huh. apples or so- something uh-huh. that actually, so you call it a hard chew. Um, uh-huh. And our, we don't really know why this is. We just know that it is. So we tell people to add crunch to their lunch. My hypothesis is that there's a certain amount of oral aggression that we're built to get out of us by chewing and like in where primates were supposed to have vegetation and vegetative requires and if you're not really doing that during the day then we think there's an instinctual need that is still pressing for discharge in the evening so that that was really interesting um and then we found that the people that overcame nighttime overeating they had nighttime rituals um so mm-hmm. we, we joke that they could call their inner pig pigula because it was like rock jackula that started whispering and they had to have you know rituals that kept the vampire out of the house so uh-huh. so um part of that involved knowing when dinner was over very specific some people mm-hmm. would clap their hands three times and go kitchen's closed right other people would go uh, brush their teeth, change their clothes, take off their makeup, makeup and go to another part of the house. Um, uh-huh. One woman, as soon as the dishes were in the dishwasher, she'd go dinner and done and she'd smack the dishwasher closed. There was a very discreet point. Okay. And if you think about the vampire movies, you know exactly when the sun's gone down, right? 
you, you, you know uh-huh. that. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing. You, you have to behave differently after the sun goes down. Um, mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to know when the sun goes down. Then they would have very particular rules for themselves about what happened after the the sun went down. Sometimes that would be like, um, you know, I'll never have anything after dinner except for, you know, tea and warm tofu or um, whatever, steamed vegetables, whatever you wanted to have afterwards. To have this, um, you know, period of decompression when there were very specific things allowed or not allowed. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't eat in bed. They they would not allow themselves to eat in bed at all. They kept bed for... Mm -hmm. No intimacy, sleep, reading, and that—that's about it. That—that that was the—that's the primary protocol we discovered to overcome nighttime overeating. There's uh-huh. there's more to it in detail, but um, yeah, that's that's the last book that I wrote. So okay, yeah, and and all of that, and I'm sure that as as you kind of alluded to earlier, you know, everybody's got their own ones of these things that they do right or don't do not everybody not everybody i mean it's a larger number i'm sure but um, everybody has a very unique overeating profile right and so, and yeah. so everybody needs a unique set of customized rules to yeah. make it make it work for them yeah no how it's it's so fascinating yeah i don't it's funny because i don't um i mean i'm sure i i'm sure i do things like that now I'm not overeating, but um, it's, uh, you know, trying to think back when I was fat. I don't remember. I don't, I don't, but it was a long time ago. And I'm sure that's why I don't remember. <laughs> I got you. you know, would, yeah. it be, would it be okay if I reminded people where they can get a free copy of the main book? Yes, please. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, that was yeah. going to be my, my next. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you can get a free copy of neverbingeagain.com at, mm-hmm. and you can get a free copy of Never Binge Again in Kindle Nook or PDF format at neverbingeagain.com if you click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses where you'll also get a set of food plan starter templates and um you know customized set of rules for any dietary philosophy when counting calorie counting ketogenic high carb low carb Uh Um, and a set of recorded coaching sessions so you can see how this actually works in practice Uh the um Interesting. The other books are available at neverbingeagainbooks.com. All these other books oh, that we talked okay. about are at neverbingeagainbooks.com. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I it you know as I'm sure you have found out <laughs> from being in this in this uh, in this area for so long that it it really is something that that most people have come up against at some point. Um, you know, and and some. How many people is it that that are successful and then relapse? I don't like the word relapse because I don't think it's okay. a disease. Yeah, but no. Okay, who, sorry, who, I didn't mean it. Yeah, I just meant I was just thinking go backwards, but yeah. People that reverse their previously best intentions, yeah. previously held best intentions. Mm-hmm. We don't know a hundred percent. I can tell mm-hmm. you that after after a month, people that are engaged with us, they report they're doing ninety percent better. Um, mm-hmm. At around the six month mark, that that number is more like in the 55 to 60% range uh, um, okay. around the year. It's like a little under 50%. So um, I mean, I think that's better than most programs, but um, yeah, a, a lot of people still go back to you. There is no treatment for free will. And if you, if you want to overreach, you can <laughs> overreach. But the, but the good thing is that if you can choose to overreach, you can also choose not to overreach. And, yeah. and stop looking for someone to do something to you or give you a pill or do some surgery and, right. you know, do the mental work that's necessary to build yeah. the fortitude and stamina to get through this. Absolutely. 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 And, 
and to, you know, and it's, and it's like so many other things, people can be doing it well for 10 or 20 years and then something will happen in their lives and they may stay with it and they may, they may not, you know, it's, um, yes, it, it's so much fun being a human being. <laughs> <laughs> But it's better than the alternative. <laughs> yeah. Susan, I have another call in a couple of minutes. Is there anything yeah, else you want you to ask or tell me? No, no, no. That's that's it. That's it. We went actually went a little longer than I had I had planned. Okay. But that's what happens. So thank you so much for coming back on. And um, I will just say what I always have to say at the end, which is that this is not to be seen as medical advice. Right. And neither of us are dot medical doctors. And if you are having um, medical problems, please go and see your doctor, whoever it is you deal with. And with that, I will say goodbye and I will see everybody next week. This has been Healthy Tips After 50 with Susan Rosen. To stay on the cutting edge of the most effective health strategies, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you thought of the show with a comment or like on iTunes. Visit healthytipsafter50.com for this episode's show notes, more resources, and free offers.